Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. My name is Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy magazine and as always here with Managing Editor Richard Hill. Hi, Richard. Look, here I am, uh, and uh, it's uh, no, it's uh, it's in the morning for us. Uh, it is uh, a brisk morning, but uh, fabulous to be here. Now we're we're off to uh, warmer climes uh, mm. over over in America again with someone who I'm sure feels terrific. Yes, yes. So back over to the states, and we're going to talk to a Dr. Lee Stevens, and he is a PhD in psychology who has done a lot of work uh, in clinical affective neuroscience. He's been published widely in a lot of top-tier peer-reviewed journals, and we're going to talk to him today about his new book, Affective Neuroscience and Psychotherapy, A Clinician's Guide for Working with Emotions. Yes, and this idea, this need, I think, for people to uh, understand what emotions are, what we do with them, it's it's our it's our tool of trade, mm, uh, and mm. so he's he's done this fantastic book. So we'll we'll talk to him. Now, now don't forget, of course, uh, everybody, th- these podcasts uh, we of course produce these for you as 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 regularly as we can. But if you want to support us, don't forget to come in. Check it out on the science of the science of psychotherapy.net and subscribe so you get access to all our information and all our heaps of stuff and fantastic things going on. So uh, we look forward to receiving your support as, as plentifully and as enthusiastically as you can give it. <laughs> That's right. We would love to have you as part of the tribe. And for those who are subscribers, please do engage with us in the discussion sections in each of the, the modules and units that you have access to. Right, Richard, let's go across to the States and talk to Dr. Stevens. Dr. Francis Lee Stevens, welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. Great to see you. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Yes, and Richard here. Uh, uh, very excited to talk about this book. This really caught my uh, fascination when, uh, when we heard about it. So great to have you. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, I'm really excited to get the word out about this book. It's uh, something that I've been kind of working on and, and brewing for a long time. Uh, it's the Affect of Neuroscience and Psychotherapy, a Clinician's Guide for Working with Emotion. Now, before we jump into the book, let's introduce you. Let's uh, let the listeners know um, sort of a bit about your background and then how you've come around to, you know, conceiving and writing this book. So uh, I'm a psychologist by training. Uh, I went to Tennessee State University. I did my internship at a counseling center, uh, University of Rochester. I did my postdoc in neuroscience at the VA in Southbury, North Carolina. And I taught at a number of colleges in Boston for several years, teaching uh, you know all sorts of social psychology, clinical psychology, neuroscience classes. Now I work in a private practice out in Worcester, Massachusetts, and I still continue to do research and um, write. And so in my in my training early on, uh, I think I started off training as a master's degree in cognitive behavioral therapy. And as I went on, I did a PhD in psychology, and that was kind of focused more on a psychodynamic bent. I think they were focused on object relations theory. And I always felt like there was kind of something missing in these different paradigms. You know, if you know anything about kind of cognitive behavioral therapy, it has the ABC model, right? So there's activating event, belief, consequence, and the goal is to make an intervention of that belief, to change your thinking, which changes the consequence or how you might feel about that. And 
for a lot of uh, like psychoanalytics, psychodynamic therapy. I trained one year at the uh, Boston Institute for Psychoanalytic Therapy, BIPSI, and it's all about insights, right? So if you go back to your childhood, you understand that better, right? You mm. see where things went wrong, that that insight, you know, will uh, solve the problem, make you healthier. And although I saw that there were some uh, benefits from these interventions, they never quite seemed to encapsulate all of my patients' problems, all the clients' problems, never seemed to quite fix everything. You know, a lot of times I felt like uh, they were left lacking. And so the whole idea here is the paradigm is based around like thinking, right? You change the way you think, the way you understand something, your insight, how you think about something, and that changes how the way you feel. I did my postdoc in uh, neuroscience with uh, Kathy Taper at the VA in Salisbury. And there's very little evidence showing that by changing thinking, you've changed an emotion. All right. If you look now at the research and uh, neuroscience and memory reconsolidation, you see that actually, if we really want to change emotion, we need to kind of change that with another emotion. You don't really change that through thinking. Right. Uh, and so as I learned more about these different types of interventions, I studied uh, interpersonal therapy and in my internship was reading about Leslie Greenberg's emotion-focused therapy and Diane Foch's accelerated experiential dynamic psychotherapy. I started seeing the role of emotion and how much that played. And so I kind of used that with kind of my training in neuroscience to kind of look at how does this fit together? How does the brain work and really respond to emotion? And that's kind of what the book's about. And in my own therapy, I kind of found this working of taking this emotion-based approach to psychotherapy versus kind of a more kind of cognitive uh, approach. And I found it been much more effective with my patients um, over time. Yeah. Now you, you've, and, and so this is what you've laid out in the first part of your book, isn't it? So you've, you, the first is um, about the scientific background, um, the need for a new approach to therapy. Can you just talk to us a little bit about um, what you lay out there in part one? Sure. So part one's kind of the more the science how now part two is more the practice sure and so part one I, I took a little bit about my background and what got me interested in this and how i came to uh, uh see emotions as so primary in psychotherapy and i look at a lot of the evidence throughout psychology of how emotion influences our memory emotion influences our attention our judgment our thinking right and so we see all these aspects all these studies of how we how emotion affects all these other kind of cognitive and uh, processes and behaviors right but if we look at the kind of the majority paradigms in psychology, they're all kind of thinking-based interventions and no one's kind of looking at the other way around. Now, that's not to say that, that thinking uh, has no effect on emotion or thinking can affect change our behaviors or have influence. It's just saying that the way the field of psychotherapy is uh, laid out right now, it's kind of overly balanced in terms of thinking and not enough on emotion. And so I talk about all the different processes of how emotion affects them. Then I go on to a, a, a third part looking at kind of the basic brain structure. And so I go through and talk about the different brain anatomy, different brain parts and their role in emotion. And that's kind of a guideline for readers. And so when you read this book, I don't recommend necessarily read it cover to cover like you might a novel, but to kind of go through and read what might be interesting. And then as you want to maybe learn more about the brain, kind of make me go back to some of the references and read a little bit more about how that area of the brain is involved in emotion and what it does. It can be kind of dry, just kind of go through and read the different parts of the brain, but it creates a nice reference towards how the different areas of the brain work together in processing and understanding emotion. 
Uh, you're you're a man after our own affect, really. Yeah, I, was <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I was thinking of I, a lot of people that are aware of this, but in my first career or my early development as a psychotherapist, I was a professional actor, and and it actually has been really useful. In fact, almost everything I know in psychotherapy, I also learned in acting school. And this just reminded me of an exercise that we did early on in, in, in acting school where we, we had a, a bit of a dialogue we had to learn, so we all went off and learned it. And we came back the next week and in the class and each we were told to perform it with uh, a, a, this emotion and then do it again with this different emotion. So we were using exactly the same dialogue but with a with a different emotional reference and framework. And I tell you what, that changed the way we thought. Yeah, there's uh, one uh, supervisor always said, you know, there's what the client is saying and there's kind of how they're saying it, the emotion behind it, right? And so uh, I was actually an improv comedian and one of the games we played was um, like I should have said or something like that. And you would say something, but the inflection and the intonation changes how that line comes across totally. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's something that's really important. This this I think there's one thing that always strikes me uh, in something that Joseph Ledoux said is that emotions have to happen to someone. That, that when you're having an emotion, there's um, there's generally a sense of self in the in the experience, although we do have basic stimuli and, and, and various things. And so when you're looking through the chapter headings, we're looking at this interesting things. I'm just, just looking at a few of them as I go to, you know, awareness of your emotions, the validation, a sense of self-compassion uh, uh, and emotional regulation. And one that I really love, which I'd love you to talk about is also, is affect reconsolidation. So, but this idea that this thing is happening to someone, how does that resonate in, in, in the frame of what you're, you're talking about? Yeah, well, let me talk, talk you through kind of like how the books outline those various chapters, right? Because um, I put them together that way because I see that kind of common linear projection in therapy that they, they kind of go from one to the other, right. right? So I start off with mindfulness as the first chapter. And that's all about kind of raising emotional awareness because if you're going to work with emotion. The first thing you have to do is be aware of it. And then you want to validate it. All right. And this is a very underused tool, but uh, very important to be able to really say, this is what I'm feeling. So we'll understand that. And then to have some self-compassion for it, right. To be able to uh, be kind to your feelings. You know, I tell people, you know, you, your feelings are your feelings. You can't change how you feel. You can only change how you respond to your feelings. You know, some patients feel guilty because they're sad or they feel, you know, bad that they're angry, but they can't change if they're angry or they're sad or whatever. If they feel is what they feel, you can't change that. You can only work with that. And so that's really about trying to accept those emotions as, as to what they are. Those first three steps is really just being okay with whatever you're feeling. And then after we want to regulate that emotion to about a moderate level, right? So people that are overly emotional, they struggle with impulsive behaviors. They can't manage that. They're going to uh, not be able to kind of engage in psychotherapy in that process because they're overwhelmed. And so you want to downregulate that. But then some people are kind of shut off and they're dissociated from emotion. You see, like with PTSD, you need to upregulate emotion then to kind of get them more aroused. And when you're in that moderate level, uh, that's the most effective for psychotherapy research has shown. And then I talk about how to kind of work with different emotions you know, like maybe setting boundaries if you're angry or how to uh, work with acceptance if you're feeling shame. 
And then the last chapter is about affect reconsolidation. It's really kind of changing kind of underlying baseline emotions. I use the term affect reconsolidation. The Basically, the same term would be memory reconsolidation. Yes. Might see that. Yes. We I call it affect. You're not really changing the memory. You're changing the emotional nature of the memory. Yes, yes, absolutely. And this this really fits in with what um, uh, Bladu was saying, you know, with, uh, and some of the things that uh, our own conclusions, Matt and I have done, is that is that it is a part of what we remember, which is really what makes up the self and the nature of, of memory and, and how it links in. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, what's beautiful in, in the book is uh, that, that these um, work you do with the different emotions, I mean, these are specific sort of interventions that you can utilise uh, along therapy. You give people specific tools, which is really fabulous. Yeah, a lot of times I think emotions are something that people see somebody regulated, right? Like I'm angry, so I need to calm that down and regulate that. Like I got to get rid of that. When really anger is a form of self-protection, right? And so anger might be about setting boundaries or if we're angry towards ourselves, it might be about self-forgiveness, letting go of that anger towards ourselves. Forgive me, giving it back to our old self. And so I talk about all these ways to kind of work with and utilize emotion, not just to regulate it, to get it to where it's like, okay, I'm not anxious anymore, but to listen to that anxiety. What's that anxiety telling you? Maybe you're afraid of something about yourself that you would need to work on, accept and and work through or, or reconsolidate and not just try to get that anxiety down to a low level so you can kind of out the door and on your way. That is such a good uh, message and paradigm shift that, you know, the negative emotions are not just something that we need to get rid of. They exactly. Have, they have utility um, and they have extreme value in the therapeutic process. So, yeah. Yeah, we yeah. feel the way we do for a certain reason. It's not just, you know, because a, a mental health problem, right? The mental health problem is the uh, secondary emotion. So if you look at kind of Leslie Greenberg's research on emotion-focused therapy, says, you know, People, you know, feel depression when they're when they're in a kind of a stuck state. So say someone dies, right? You're going to feel sad about that. But maybe you don't want to feel sad. Maybe you don't want to deal with this. You push it down, okay? But you actually, you, you know, your body wants to feel sad. It wants to mourn that loss, right? So it's kind of pushing up. That tension, that causes depression. And that can last forever. It's suffering. We study Buddhism. The way we can fix that is, as therapists, as psychologists, we try to take the lid off that and allow ourselves to accept that sadness. And we accept that sadness, the longer are we stuck feeling uh depression yes that's right because it's the it's the other affective disorders that emerge out of the difficulty or the uh, the difficulty of managing uh an emotional state exactly right so you know maybe you're anxious about something but maybe you're anxious about uh something you did a long time ago you got shame around that but you don't want to talk about it right the anxiety is a manifestation of this other emotion. And when we can work through and accept the anxiety and see what's behind that and accept ourselves or forgive whatever it is or to move past that, then we're not going to have that secondary state of emotion. So things like anxiety and depression, these psychopathology, these are just uh, symptoms of a larger problem, not just uh, something we want to just manage the emotion for. We want to try to understand the larger problem behind it. Another way to talk about the same thing in a different way is in talking to therapists who just purely use a cognitive approach, what do they miss out on? What are they missing? Yeah. And this is what you were saying in the beginning, wasn't it, Lee? Yeah. That, that you found it missing. Yeah. So I'll give you one great example of kind of where I came up with this. When I worked at the VA, I got a lot of guys, veterans with like road rage. It was kind of a common thing. And they come to my office and they would say, oh, you know, I got angry. I'm sorry. You know, it won't happen again. I got to just manage my anger. You know, I got it taken care of. And, you know, you could kind of work with them to maybe 
deep breathe or, you know, develop tools to manage their anger, which are good, but that's never going to fix the problem necessarily. Right. And so if I could get them to kind of stay and we would talk with them, I understand that they had a lot of like hmm, trauma from their childhood, trauma from going to wars they want to go to, doing things in wars they want to do, right? All of these things are um, boundary violations, right? You're, you're, you're being put in a situation that goes against who you are, your integrity, right? So of course, you're going to be angry about that, right? So these guys had good reason to be angry. The problem was, is that they were misattributing it. So all your emotions are valid. They're all important. They're all real. They're just not always germane to the current situation. So what happens is some old lady would pull out in front of them, you know, which makes us all a little bit angry. But these guys would go into rage because it would bring up all their anger from the past, right? They're like, oh, my God, overwhelmed with anger from uh, all their past. And then they want to, you know, run that lady off the road. And then afterwards, when that happens, they feel shame around that. Oh, my God, what I do? I'm so sorry around that. They think their anger is a problem. So they're like, oh, I'm so my anger is such a problem. I'm so embarrassed by it. I got to get rid of it. If I could say, no, your anger is fine. It's what you're doing, your behavior. You can't act out like that. If we can accept that anger, all right, uh, let go of it, reconsolidate it, change it, then you're not going to have those uh, reactions, all right? But we got to work with all that anger from the past. You know, just trying to manage it in the here and now is not going to fix all the anger that's within, within inside of you. Yeah, that's so important. This reminder, just quickly, I'll, I'll share one of my cases from way back. Sure. And it was uh, somebody uh, with twins, and she had a, a, a SIDS death, or so uh, you know, unexplained death of one of the twins. And um, uh, she came to me. Actually, was in a public venue, which was very difficult. But she said, "Everybody tells me to get over it and and stop having this emotion." And uh, and I said. No, of course not. You've you've lost a child. This is this yeah. is a terrible thing. Uh, but to cut the, the long story short, I got to the end of it, and she started talking about uh, she had a little shrine for the child, and I thought, well, that's nice. You know, you got that there. Yeah. And I just sort of thought, uh, how many pictures do you have of the child around the house? And she sort of spent a moment and counted up like twenty or thirty photographs of that. And and it was one of those intuitive moments where I just sort of said, and how many photos do you have of the surviving child? And she counted around and said, oh, four. And I said, there's your problem. You have an imbalance of, and so it's very similar to what you're saying. Validate. I mean, there's nothing invalidate or incorrect about the sad emotion, but let's just get it in the framework, in the context, in a in a in a livable experience, and that yeah, your that VA want guy to was very that much like and allow it to, to pass to be like I'm sad around this this child this loss accept that and when you accept that that loss moves through you and when when you uh, effectively gr- grieved grieve the loss then you can be able to be uh, enjoy your the child that's still living the rest of your life okay but if you don't allow yourself to grieve because you want to have the emotion then you're going to be in that stuck state and you're going to be fixated on it yeah, yeah. i suggest yeah. that you had equal number of photos <laughs> and she was very happy and went away that's a good idea probably <laughs> yeah 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 so so when we're um, sort of drilling down to the neuroscience of this and you know we, we can talk about maybe the hippocampus and its uh, role in you know attributing and uh, making associations between affect and autobiographical memory and that sort of thing let's let's sort of drill down to some of the nuts and bolts of how these emotions become maybe uh, unhinged from the here and now you were talking about the soldier just before yeah it's like when you get emotionally activated, 
All right. You know, and I see this in patients all the time. They get overwhelmed. They're often unable to make kind of accurate attributions for our emotions. In fact, if you look at the research in psychology, we often misattribute our emotions all the time, right? That we sometimes blame other people for how we feel or we think, you know, we give someone mm. some caffeine and all of a sudden they think they're excited about something that they're not really excited about. Yeah. And so when we're overwhelmed and this is where we might need to think about kind of some of those cognitive strategies, thinking you know, down-regulate emotion. But when we're overwhelmed, we're very quick to misattribute uh, our emotion. And so, you know, if I'm in a, a bad mood for whatever happened to me, I might say, oh, this podcast is not going well. I'm upset about this. Why don't they ask me better questions? Yada, yada, yada. Right. Because I'm assuming my bad mood is about what's happening here and now. But that's often not the case. And so we have to be very careful about how we attribute our emotions. I often say, you know, do you know why you feel that way? And if you don't, that's okay to my patients because sometimes you don't know why you feel the way you do. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And because you're on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast, you would never feel that way anyway. (laughs) (laughs) There there we go. Of course, I feel so much better being here now, you know, and my wife's going to be so excited because I'm going to be in such a good mood. She's going to think it's about her, but it's really about you guys. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) But but this, uh, uh, an understanding, uh, we're great believers that if you have some understanding of the the science behind, it doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, make you a a sort of a, a, a technician, but it just gives you a... A greater depth of feeling of of where they're at. So, do you sometimes find yourself saying, uh, "Oh, uh, you know, I, I can I can feel this part of the brain firing up, or that part of the brain," and that helps you understand what the patient is is experiencing? Does it? How does that enhance your experience? It does. It really helps me understand the patterns I see in everyday psychotherapy. You know, I don't go through with my patients and say, oh, you know, all this self-referential thinking, you're probably your default mode network's overacting and we need to calm that down, right? But in my mind, I might be thinking that, you know, and that there's this area of the brain that can kind of get caught in a loop when we think about ourselves and overly focus on ourselves. And we need to try to break out of that. And sometimes things like um, mindfulness is very good to be able to separate yourself from your feeling or your experience. And so if I find that someone's, you know, overly personalizing things or engage a lot of self-referential thinking, I might uh, engage intervention like mindfulness to be able to try to tease that apart and not get kind of caught up in that network. Yeah, yeah. It, it, It increases your empathy for the client, the patient as well, doesn't it? Because if you understand the mechanism, then uh, I don't know. Well, for myself, it increases empathy for the for the client. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it helped me understand it more, right? So mm-hmm. the more I understand the brain, you know, the more I'm like, my clients are doing the best that they can, yeah. right? I might first I would think, gosh, you know, why does this person that's, you know, an alcoholic keep drinking? He knows it's bad for him, right? It hasn't helped at all. What's going on? But when you start understanding the dopamine pathways in the brain, right? And how that gets reinforced, then it's like they are, they don't want it, but they're so craving, you know, we understand, we have, we understand, we understand the neuroscience, we understand wanting and liking are two separate things. So we can want stuff we don't like. So they don't, they know the alcohol is no good. They don't like it, but they want it because that dopamine hit that's so powerful. And so then it's like, I can appreciate and have more empathy and say, yeah, I mean, I don't have that dopamine discharge, but they do. And that's why they're struggling so much. It's not just uh, a lapse of uh, willpower or a self-destructive habit. It's that they can't stop that dopamine impulse. 
Uh, and we need to actually do things that help change those uh, balance of receptors and so on and so forth, just all these little technical aspects, which probably is stuff that that we learn in some of these um, neuroscience uh, that you learned in your early neuroscience degrees. But I am fascinated when we when we talk in neuroscience how much, uh, uh, I mean, I hate the way uh, academia silos off things, you know, and, and uh, breaks things up, but we actually have affective neuroscience as a, a area of study and cognitive neuroscience as a sort of an entirely separate area of study and it sounds like you went through those those avenues and those those sort of neighborhoods on the way and that's what frustrated you the disconnection what was sort of the yeah so it's really hard this is it's a great uh distinction you make between kind of the affective neuroscience and the cognitive neuroscience and you're right the brain all works together but it's hard not to simplify this stuff down when you're trying to kind of put it in terms of like, okay, what does intervention look like, right? So I talk about kind of the emotional part of the brain, the cognitive part of the brain, and how they don't always kind of mix and get along. But, you know, if you really look at what's happening in the brain, all these networks are interacting, the cognitive areas, the prefrontal cortex, and the subcortical limbic areas, there's all this talk between the two. However, you know, there is a bit, there is some distinction, but it's not black and white. And so it's like, you have to be able to recognize like, okay, these distinctions, these knowing between kind of the, uh, you know, the, the cerebellum kind of what they call like the reptile brain and the, you know, the limbic system, the more emotional brain, the prefrontal more cognitive brain, right. It's helpful to think about it, but you also have to be able to know when to let that go too, Mm. because Mm. it's not one kind of, uh, three-part system here it all mixes yeah. together yeah and i think the uh, connectome project has really highlighted that as well just looking at the the interconnections the the the, hot, the highways and the freeways you know between different regions of the brain and, yeah, like and I, more and know, more we look at kind of brain networks which is yeah, like that's right multiple areas of the brain both kind of cortical and some kind of working together like the yeah. salience network the default mode network and so we see that it's like okay it's not just you know these different parts of the machine but different mm-hmm. kind of uh pathways together and that yeah. helps us understand the, the the function of the brain better just just when we're looking at you know sort of pet scans and things like that we we might be under the false assumption that you know there's only these discrete areas of the brain lighting up at any one time but we have to remember most of the brain is lit up most of the time it's just that there are particular areas of of focus at any one particular time and i think we forget that you know, this terribly integrated system is all working most of the time. Yeah, it's hard, like, when you, you don't want to publish a great academic paper not to be reductionist and say, oh, yes. the amygdala is all about fear and that's great, you know, but these are oftentimes, you know, the amygdala has, you know, connections to the hippocampus and the uh, ventral medial uh, prefrontal cortex, and so all this is interacting. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's one thing we, we we try to talk about certainly in, in, in our new book that that all this stuff informs us, uh, but it mustn't constrain us. Uh, yes, and as you say, yeah. limit us that reductionist uh, that reductionist idea. And I mean, one of the notes I made as as I was looking through your book was um, we try to uh, yes that cognitive thing of you can think your way out of trouble. And then there's the emotionalists who say, no, we have to feel our way out of trouble. Um, but what you're talking about here is that it's if if you can understand the interaction and the integration and the interplay between those two processes, you're you're probably going to be ever more successful. 
Yeah. So let me give you an example that I would give my students, because I think sometimes say, oh, you need to think more, you know, use your head more, you know, go with your intuition, go with how you feel. And really this should be a balance, right? So, you know, I tell my students, you know, maybe you have an exam the next day and your friend says, hey, let's go out for some pizza and beer and have a good time. Well, right away, you might find yourself in a state of cognitive dissonance. You know, I think I should stay home and study, but I feel like I want to go out and have fun, right? Right away. So that's kind of the mild level, first level pathology, kind of maybe where your thinking brain, your feeling brain aren't connected, right? But if we really kind of slow down and sit with this, all right, and, and listen to both our feelings and our thoughts, you know, we have a thought and a feeling about both, right? We might feel like, you know, I really want to do well in, in my school. I have goals. You know, I, I feel like I've worked really hard. I can go out. Um, you might think you might have a thought about going out too, which is like, well, I can ask my friends to go out tomorrow night, you know, or, you know, I think I've studied enough and I think it's okay to go out. Right. And when you, you balance the thinking and feeling around both decisions, well, then you can make a sound decision to either go out or stay home. If you don't integrate the brain like that, what happens is, is you go out and then you feel guilty because you're not studying or you stay in and you, you're mad. You feel sad because you didn't go out and have fun. You're not listening to your, you're not integrating the whole brain. So what we really want to do when we have a, a kind of a dissonance like that in the brain, we have a difference between maybe how we think and how we feel is not just to say, oh, go with how you think or go with how you feel, but to try to integrate both the thinking and the feeling around that dissonance to make the best decision. Yeah, it's interesting because what I see as you as we're talking about seeing the brain, of course, we've got these sort of separated elements but integrated aspects in the dorsolateral, which is looking at decision making, the ventrolateral, which is looking more at that sort of emotional engagement, and the orbitofrontal, which is looking for uh, correctness or accuracy or, or or rightness and wrongness. And um, they're all just sitting up there, you know, in the something the size of your fist. And we disconnect them, but they're all connected, yet they're all elemental parts that we can functionally use. Uh, sorry, how does that, does that sound okay? Uh, I actually was just putting it out there for your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, like, it's like, what is it, the Mr. Spock paradigm, right, where someone would be overly focused on thinking or the Captain Kirk with the more kind of emotional thing, right, that we have kind of these two... These two kind of, you know, we can say we have kind of a separate feeling and a separate thinking brain. Of course, like we said, they're very integrated. But some of us, you know, depending upon our histories, will tend to kind of rely more on one or the other, right? So we kind of we like to think through things. You know, I have patients that they have a problem, they just want to think about it, and they make these big decision trees, right? But they're if they're not paying attention to their feelings, they can never really make a good decision. And I have patients that kind of just kind of go with what they feel and what's going on. But we talked earlier about how you can misattribute emotion, right? And so when you do that, you might think, oh, I feel you know good. I'm going to do this. But really, that feeling is about something else. And so you really have to integrate the two, right? All the brain together to make the best decisions. Yeah. Oh my. Yeah. That, that's the the, the, the the neurology of Star Trek. The, I'm just sitting here thinking, that's so true. Look at that. That's exactly what they do. They divide the brain up. Into they divide the brain up. Yeah, it creates a great metaphor. And you can see them argue on yeah. Star Trek and how they solve problems together. But really, this is just our brain interacting. But you've yeah. got you had Sulu, who is the, the the one who finds direction. You've got the the other one who's got the youth. You've got the the communicator. So they're all different areas of the brain, right? You know? <laughs> Here we yeah. go. Here's a new book. Well, that's flying <laughs> low back there with the. <laughs> so but, that's a, but, it, but it is an interesting point. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's another big discussion on um, personality, you know, differences. As you say, you know, some people are more emotional and some people are more cognitive. But um, what have we missed so far? Because we, we're going to wrap up in a minute. So uh, is there anything, Lee, that you'd like to sort of round out with? Well, I can follow up on that comment about, you know, the, I've done some research on some people are more emotional, more cognitive. And what we find is like, if you look at like attachment theory, right? So some of anxious attachment and avoidant attachment, these are all just strategies to cope with emotion. So anxious people, you know, when they're not being paid attention to by the, by the mother figure, they get more animated, they get more emotional. They're trying to get the mother's attentions where avoiding people kind of shut off. The mother's not coming, they've given up. All right. And you see this strategy as a way to cope with feelings later on in life. So avoiding people when they get overwhelmed, they just kind of shut off. And you see more like dissociative disorders, PTSD, stomatic form disorders, these types of people. When people that anxious disorders seem more like hysteronic personality disorder, anxiety disorders, because they're acting out their feelings versus one shutting off their feelings. And these are just different ways to cope with emotion. Right. Oh, wow. That's really, really fascinating. That's uh, yeah. And again, this thing of um, broadening the, the the perceptions because here you are integrating uh, aspects of attachment theory and finding it reframing itself. That oh yeah, and then you see these areas in the brain too in terms of like the cingulate uh, cortex and how that responds to emotion. Oh, so cool! And yeah. and so that um, that research is that uh, uh, coming out or is that just going on? Or, or that stuff I published. If you go to my webpage, drfrancisstevens.com, you links to my publications on a on the on attachment theory and then also on. Uh, uh, I just came out with an article on empathy and looking at how empathy and compassion create pro-social behavior in the brain. So the neuroscience behind that. Beautiful. We'll we'll put links on the on the the the, the website uh, yeah. on the page there for everyone to go to and and uh, to check you out further and uh, make sure and we'll put links to the book because everybody needs to get this book. It's just fabulous. What a great yeah! Discussion. I'm really excited about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you should be. I wrote it, I guess, right? So <laughs> but but maybe I'm biased, right? <laughs> hope I'm not yes. misattributing my emotion. <laughs> no, but we we've 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 got the same feeling. So uh, attribution and uh, we 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 absolutely concur so yeah. thank you so much for for coming on and talking with us today we'll wrap up now because uh, we know our listeners sort of have enough for about yeah. after about 30 minutes well, or thanks so. for having i want to say thanks for having me it's always i always love being able to talk about psychology and this stuff you know it's yeah. it, it's always fun i love it um so anytime i get a chance to talk about psychology i'm happy it's been a pleasure dr stevens thanks so much for joining us here on the science of psychotherapy podcast take care bye-bye okay bye-bye that was so much fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was so interesting. Look, we've discovered a new book for the uh, the Star Trek uh, <laughs> franchise, uh, although I'm sure someone probably already talked about that, but it just That's became it. so clear to me. And, uh, uh, but a really interesting fellow and smart as a whip. Gee, yes, yes. Stuff. Yeah, so I just encourage people to to check out uh, Dr. Francis Lee Stevens. Now, his his website is drfrancisstevens.com. On his site, you will find not only information about the book, uh, but also links to resources and um, papers that he's written. Re- if you're interested in affective neuroscience, yeah. which you should be, um, get into that. Yeah, I'm heading off to it as soon as we finish. Right then. Well... Thank you, everyone, for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. Once again, if you do enjoy what we're doing here, please do support us by becoming a subscriber to the scienceofpsychotherapy.net. We'd love to see you as a part of our tribe. Otherwise, Richard? It's time to go. <laughs> it's time to go. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye for now.
Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.